Our dear God, we thank you that we can read your word. We pray now that you might fill us with your spirit so we hear your voice. So we are filled with hope. So we can live out a fearless faith. Amen. Now, who do you think you are? How would you describe yourself? How would you categorize yourself? Uh, It wasn't that long ago I filled in a form at a swimming pool when I was kind of buying a multi-pass. And the first four questions uh, in the form categorized me in terms of how the the swimming pool now thinks about me. Uh, Question one, how often do you go, how often do you visit the pool? Uh, Now that's fair enough. Question two, are you male or female? Now I didn't mind answering that one. I didn't have to think too long and hard about that. Question three, though, got a little bit more tricky. Uh, Age. Now, I was feeling a a little bit less good about this one because I actually had to tick the box that said 35 to 50. I couldn't even write down that I was kind of just inside the 35, end of the 35 to 50 category. But then came the fourth question. Job, occupation, industry. Again, an awkward one. These, these, these lists of jobs and trades and industries, they, have, they never have church and pastors. I, I, there's never one of them. So I've always got to tick that box that says other. And so four questions in, I'm not feeling all that good about myself because apparently, according to Paul, I'm supposedly a middle-aged man with a weird job who sporadically gets into his togs and goes for a swim at the local pool. Uh, when you put it like that, that's not quite the box I thought I might be putting myself in at this stage in my life. Uh, But that's the thing about the world, isn't it? The world is always giving us categories in which to pigeonhole ourselves. Are you married? Or are you single? Do you own a house? Or do you rent? Are you employed? Or are you unemployed? Are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? Mac or PC? Holden or Ford? Who do you think you are? Because the world has no shortage of categories to help us answer that question. Which is why 1 Peter is such a great part of the Bible. Because in 1 Peter, God tells us who we are. God gives us the categories that really matter. And what happens is that when we take these categories on board that God sets, when we realize who God has made us to be, the upshot of this is that we can have fearless faith. You see, in a world that tells Christians to shut up, in a world that wants uh, Christians wants to shut Christians out. Uh, 1 Peter tells us the truth about who we are in Jesus. And when we realize and embrace that reality of who we are in Jesus, then we'll have fearless faith. Fearless faith, faith even in the, in the face of danger and discrimination. And as we turn to 1 Peter, there are two key ideas in chapter 1 that will help us to have this fearless faith. And the first idea is knowing who you are. And the second is knowing what you've got. Knowing who you are is right where Peter begins. He begins here in chapter 1 with our identity. Uh, And when Peter describes who we are, it's got nothing to do with your job or your age or even how often you go to the pool. Our identity is tied up with what God has done rather than anything we might do ourselves. Take a look with me at verse 1. Verse 1. To God's elect... Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So, what's our identity? Who are we? Well, there's two key words there. Elect exiles. Now, like many superheroes that have a a double identity, there's Superman and Clark Kent, there's Batman and Bruce Wayne, there's Spider-Man and Peter Parker. 
For the Christian, the follower of Jesus, there is elect, chosen by God, and there's exiles, strangers in the world. So what does it mean to be elect, a a chosen one? Well, take a look there at verse 2. Peter's writing to God's elect scattered exiles who, verse 2, have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. You see, they are God's chosen ones. Every day uh, when I was at school, we would play uh, touch footy at lunchtime. Uh, and the, first, the rule was that the first two kids to the field, they would be the captains, and then they would get to choose the teams. Now, uh, at school, uh, much like today, you could say that I was built uh, for comfort rather than speed. And so often I would have that sinking feeling as everyone seemed to be chosen ahead of me. Uh, now, that all changed at school for me when we stopped playing touch footy and we started playing tackle rugby. All of a sudden, I would find myself chosen much earlier in the lineup, and it felt good to be chosen. Uh, it feels good to be chosen, doesn't it? Whether it be for a job or a team or a choir, or if a friend chooses to hang out with you, it's nice to be chosen. You see, we like the feeling of being chosen because it makes us feel like there's something about us that is wanted, that is desired. Now, if we trust in Jesus, it's because we have been chosen by God, but it isn't being chosen like being chosen for a sports team. We haven't been chosen because of any particular skill or our stature. No, God has chosen us as his people despite ourselves. We don't have anything that he needs. Uh, We've done nothing to earn his selection. It's it's in his mercy and his grace that he chooses us. And we're not just kind of a last minute inclusion on the team. No, we're chosen, it says, according to God's foreknowledge. Before you were born, God was thinking about you. Back when he was creating the world, he was choosing you. And you're not a borderline choice. We see in verse 2 that the whole Trinity, all three persons of God, are actively working to make us one of his elect. You see, God the Father, he chooses you. God the Holy Spirit was and is working in you to sanctify you. God the Son, Jesus, he died on the cross to make it all possible. It's a unanimous choice by God. All of the Trinity, all at work in our election. But being chosen by God also means a shift for us. We no longer belong in this world. We are exiles in this world. And that's the second key part to our identity. We are foreigners. We are exiles. We are strangers. And, and for Peter's original readers, they were scattered around the, modern area, around the area of modern-day Turkey. They lived in a world which was dominated by pagan festivals. It was dictated by a different morality. Its its whole orientation was completely different to that of God and his people. And so the followers of Jesus, they stood out in this world. They didn't fit in. They were strangers and exiles in the world around them. Uh, Now, remember the time where it was possible to travel overseas? Remember what it was like to kind of get on a plane and fly to another country and experience a different culture and a different language and a different food. Uh, well, Thomas Cook, it was a, a very large travel company that went belly up last year in the UK. I recently found some of the feedback that they've been given by their customers who didn't adjust well to being in a foreign land. Uh, one customer complained. Um, they said this, On my holiday to Goa in India, I was disgusted to find that almost every restaurant served curry. I don't like spicy food. 
Another said, uh, when we were in Spain, there were too many Spanish people there. The receptionist spoke Spanish. The food was Spanish. No one told us that there would be so many foreigners in Spain. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. But uh, in some sense, if we trust in Jesus, we ought not to be surprised that the world around us is different like those people were. We ought not to be surprised that we won't fit in, that we can't get with the program, that we constantly find ourselves sailing into the wind or bumping up against the culture or being sidelined and silenced because we follow Jesus. And the reason is because we are not at home in this world. You see, Peter is saying that more than just being strangers, we are exiles scattered. You can see the word that's uh, translated as scattered there, it's, it's the word diaspora. And it comes from the same word used to describe the Jewish people as they were scattered during the Babylonian exile, dispersed throughout the nations. It's a special word, and it's a special word to invoke a special point, invoke the idea that we aren't just any group of people scattered about the place. We're not just a bunch of misfits because we wear socks and sandals. No diaspora, God's chosen people is who we are. God's chosen people living as exiles away from home. And so fearless faith, it begins with knowing who you are. You are elect. You are chosen by God, secured by his spirit through the work of his son. You are God's people. So you do not belong to this world. You're an exile. You're a temporary resident here. You have another home so you can have fearless faith. And the next reason we can have fearless faith is because we have a living hope. We have a living hope so we can endure hardship even with joy because we know who we are and what we've got going for us. And that's really what the rest of uh, today's passage is about where Peter sets out what we have got, what we have as God's elect exiles. Uh, and the thing that stands out that we, uh, what we have uh, is that we have hope. And Peter gives three reasons for this hope. Uh, hope because of what God has done. Hope because of what God is doing. And finally, we can have certainty of our hope. So firstly, hope because of what God has done. Uh, look with me at verse 3. Verse 3 says, Praise be to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is being kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, there's a lot there, isn't there? Uh, but what is the hope that we can have in what God has done? Well, we can have this hope because of God's mercy, because we have been born again, because we've been born again into this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus which means that it's a hope that's been done. It's a hope that's completed. It's a hope that's finished. I don't know what you think about when you think about the word hope, but uh, usually the world uses it in terms of a, a, a sort of wishful thinking about the future, kind of, I hope it's not raining tomorrow, or I, I hope I do well in my exams, or I hope I get that job I've just applied for. And now all of these are just simply uh, wishful desires about the future, just optimism about how things will turn out. Uh, but not for the Christian, says Peter. Peter says that we have a living hope, a hope that is living because Jesus has sorted it out already. A hope that is living because Jesus' resurrection guarantees what's to come. Jesus is alive, so our hope is alive. And what is to come? 
Well, an inheritance. An inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Kept in heaven for you. And that inheritance, it's a new home. It's a, it's a place where we belong. You see, there will come a time when we will no longer be strangers and foreigners and exiles, but we will be at home. We'll be at home with our God and, and we'll be there as his chosen people. And this hope, it's based on what God has already done, on what God has already achieved, a hope based on what, he, what has already happened when Jesus conquered death and rose again. And it's a hope that leads to joy, uh, even in the face of suffering. Uh, take a look at verse 8. Uh, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, because of what God has done in Jesus, there is hope and there is joy There is hope and there is joy because of Jesus. We can have this inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Uh, It was uh, revealed a little while back uh, that uh, the Ministry of Health had advised the governments that in order to deal with COVID, they needed to completely close the border, uh, even close it to Kiwis coming home that they would not be allowed to enter. Uh, Now, rightfully, the government ignored the advice of the uh, Ministry of Health uh, because to, to, to do that, to shut people off from their rightful home, uh, even in these un- extreme circumstances, to shut people off from coming home, that would be unthinkable. That would be unthinkable. But our inheritance, our home with God, it is even more secure than a, a passport or a birth certificate. It is secured by what God has already done, that death has already been defeated, that Jesus has already risen from the dead, which means our hope, it can never perish spoil or fade. It isn't subject to a change in circumstances or politics or anything else. It is a hope in what God has already done for us in Jesus. And it is also a hope in what God is doing. What God is doing, even through suffering. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. In this, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come, so the, the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see, as we know already, living as strangers and exiles in, in this world, it's, it's hard to hold orthodox Christian views on marriage or gender or sexuality, a whole bunch of other issues, you know, it invokes mocking and scorn and exclusion from our society. And here's a quote from a mainstream newspaper in New York City. Samaritan's Purse, a Christian charity, should not be welcome in New York, not even to treat the coronavirus. Soon, the makeshift field hospital recently erected in Central Park will go fully operational at which point the 68-bed facility will begin to treat critically ill respiratory patients overflowing from nearby Mount Sinai Hospital. This would be wonderful news if it were not for the fact that this outpost is being staffed and administered by Samaritan's Purse, a Christian group. Now, as shocking as that is, and it is shocking, Peter would say this is what we're to expect. If we stand up and stand out because we follow Jesus then trials will come. Uh, In the short run, to be honest, Peter doesn't expect things to go well for the followers of Jesus. 
Now, some may say that being a Christian is to go from victory to victory to victory, but the Bible speaks of a different reality. It speaks more of suffering now and glory later, faithfulness and patience and endurance. Those are the words the Bible uses to describe the Christian life. And so when things are getting difficult, the temptation for some of us is just to roll over, to kind of pull up the anchor and simply just kind of go with the flow, to drop your hope in God and what he has promised and just go the path of least resistance. But you know what? If you do that, Peter says you're actually shortchanging yourself. You'll miss out. Why? Well, Peter says, these trials have come for our benefit. They've come for our good. It's like they're saying, no pain, no gain. There is, uh, th- these trials are for our growth. Now, these trials are not to test our faith as though you could fail and fall away. Peter says, these trials are to strengthen our faith, our trust in God. And the result will be praise and glory and honor on the last day. It will be the well done, good and faithful servant when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, without trying to be too too dramatic, our our family's experienced its fair shares of ups and downs over the recent years. Uh, This week, we celebrated the third anniversary of Isaac, our eldest son, the third anniversary of him having his bone marrow transplant. Now, his transplant was the culmination of kind of one of the rockiest years of our life where we were moved all over the country uh, for his treatment for leukemia. Now, that wasn't persecution at the hands of the world, but it was a trial for our faith, uh, for our trust in God. Would Would our son live or die? How would we cope as a couple and as a family? Would the baby church that we had just planted survive a year without a pastor? But there was comfort in these verses. I actually preached on this passage just days after he was diagnosed. The comfort here is knowing that God uses even the most difficult of times to grow us, to refine us, to mature us. And we saw that through Isaac's treatment time and time again, God grew us closer together as a family. God gave us hope in life beyond the grave. God gave us opportunities to share the hope that we had in Jesus with those who didn't know him. God grew this church in number and in maturity, even while we were gone. But the thing I'm actually most thankful for is this. It cemented for me the knowledge that even in the midst of trials, we can have hope in what God is doing. And so when you fear rejection, when you invite someone to Jesus is, or when you're mocked at the family reunion for taking the Bible seriously, or when you're overlooked for a promotion because you refuse to turn a blind eye to the shady ethics, or if you're frozen out of the relationships at the school gate because you won't go along with the gossip, when it happens, ask yourself this. Ask yourself, how is God using this for my good and for his glory? How is he using this to grow me? How is he using this for me to bear witness to Jesus? You see, we can have hope in what God is doing, even when it's hard. And finally, Peter says, we can have a certain hope. And, and to do this, he kind of maps out this kind of spiritual and historical backstory. Uh, have a look there in verses 10 to 12. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest of care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that will follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, 
Even angels long to look into these things. Now, again, there's a lot there, uh, but what Peter is saying is, is pretty simple. We can have certain hope because God has been planning this all along. God's been planning this all along. See, the hope that we have in Jesus, it was anticipated. It wasn't plan B or plan C or plan Z. No, just as God chooses us in his foreknowledge, God has always planned to bring salvation through Jesus. You see, the prophets of the Old Testament, they searched and they prayed so that they might know when the Messiah was coming. And so they pointed to his coming. They also knew the pattern of God's work. First, that Jesus must suffer and then glory would follow. It would be death on a cross and then resurrection and exaltation and blessing. You see, this was God's sovereign plan all along. In his power and in his authority, he ordained salvation to come in this way. Life would come through death. Victory would come through defeat. Fulfillment through apparent failure. Vindication came for Jesus through rejection. And that was God's plan. And that still is God's plan. And it will continue to be God's plan. And so as we face trials, as we endure suffering, we do it knowing that the God who is in control of all things, knowing that it is all part of his good plan, Nothing has taken him by surprise. Nothing has brought things undone. And so in the face of suffering and in the face of trials, we can have fearless faith, says Peter. We can have fearless faith because we know who we are. You are God's chosen people. You are God's chosen people who look forward to another home. And we know what we've got. You have a living hope, a hope that is eternal, a hope that is anchored in the power and the sovereignty of God. But I am aware that not everyone hearing this will will have this as their own hope. I know that some of you, you have not yet put your trust in Jesus. And if that's you, can I just speak to you for a moment? Depending on how you hear these words from Peter today, you might be thinking, suffering, trials, persecution for following Jesus. No, thanks. Uh, That's not really the vibe I'm going for. But if that's you, let me just say this. Knowing Jesus brings hope even to the hardest of times. Trusting Jesus means that you don't go through them alone. You go through hard times with a community of brothers and sisters that you're united to by God's Spirit and you're empowered by God's own Spirit. And you can endure hard times knowing that God uses them for good. And to be honest, if you don't know Jesus... There's still going to be times where life sucks. But those times will be pointless. They'll be futile. So whoever you are, can I, just, can I invite you to our Jesus is course uh, that is beginning this week? There could be no better way you could use this time that you've got on your hands to get to know who Jesus is and the hope that can be found in him. Uh, let us know in one of the uh, connect forms. We'd love to uh, share the good news of Jesus with you. We'd love for you to be able to echo these words with Peter in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you.